0: Waldy and Bendy. Bendy. Hello and welcome to Waldy and Bendy's Adventures in Art, the podcast they couldn't stop. I'm Waldy, better known perhaps as Valdemar Januszczak, I'm the art critic of the Sunday Times. And my co host is Bendor Bendy Grosvenor, world famous art historian and TV legend who presents Britain's lost masterpieces on the BBC so how are you Bendy?
1: I'm very well thank you I have to say I haven't heard the name Bendy since I was at school so it doesn't exactly
0: bring back the best memories but anyway (laughs) we keep you young on this podcast Uh, we also keep you abreast of things going on in that fascinating territory the art world Uh, always lots going on in the art world Bendor so what's grabbing your attention at the moment?
1: Well, the big story of the week so far for me is actually to do with numbers and money. Uh, In the Sunday Times, there was a report uh, about the extent to which museums in the UK have deaccession, that is, uh, flogged stuff off in order to keep paying the bills. And it was an eye-watering 27 million pounds over the last decade. And I think most people might be surprised at that because We tend to think that deaccessioning is not something we do in the UK. It's what American museums do. They're always flogging stuff off in the States. But we do it here. And actually, how we do it here reveals, I think, a problem with our museum landscape in Britain and something we're going to have to address after this uh, terrible pandemic is over. The deaccessioning is happening not in the national museums because they're actually reasonably well off after the last decade of cuts. It's really affecting the regional museums, the smaller museums across the nation. Um, and they're having to to sell stuff because they're really suffering uh, with cuts. And I think that figure of 27 million pounds should be something of a wake-up call uh, to the extent to which we we need to look again at how we support those museums. I mean, I don't know what your your philosophical view of uh, deaccessioning is, Waldemar. Uh, I take the view that as long as the money goes straight back into the pot, the museum pot, to say, buy new pictures. It's okay. But it's when you start selling stuff to pay for potholes, you know, for the rest of the council authority, that you get a problem. And that unfortunately is happening. Uh, Berry Council, for example, sold uh, a picture by Lowry, and uh, took the money straight back into the general uh,
0: council tax pot, Mm. uh, leaving the museum very shortchanged. It's tricky, isn't it? Um, One of the great unbreakable rules of life is that there's no such thing as a free lunch. But how are these museums supposed to survive in many cases when they have been cut back so thoroughly by government policy towards the arts over the past couple of decades? I don't really blame any council, frankly, or any museum for, for looking around and thinking, well, how are we going to survive? And of course, I mean, I agree with you, if it's a case of something important happening, or if the money is used, for example, to buy something else for the collection, which I know is, is a reason that's often given. Um, personally, I, I I can't see how you can get away with not doing it really. And we do have these enormous collections in Britain of stuff. The stuff kept in the stores, there's things that never see the light of day. Mm. A bit of sort of sensible pruning, you know, in the way that people, when they manage teak plantations, they cut down a few trees every now and then, sell them and grow new ones you know, that probably has to go on. And I know that there is this big moral um, darkness to the whole idea of deaccessioning. It's such a horrible word, isn't it, for a start? Yes. Let's, let's think of something more beautiful to call it, you know. But I mean, it in the end, surely it makes some sense. If you've got stuff too much stuff if it it doesn't see the light of day I mean I never saw that the most notorious case was the Northampton Egyptian sculpture wasn't it which went for 15 odd million quid at Christie's and Northampton Council took the money and used it to, to build another another building didn't they and expand their art gallery but I personally never saw this Egyptian sculpture it's not a thing that was really prominent in the British art world or in museum culture and I don't think it was a place you know people didn't trek all the way to Northampton from all around the world to see it so there's a sense in which you know, you have to be pragmatic about this. And as long as it's done carefully, and as long as there are millions and millions of things built in to stop you just doing it willy-nilly, I think it's a policy that that has to continue, frankly.
1: Yes, uh, the, the other statistic which underpins the whole deaccessioning issue is the fact that in the UK, uh, about 90% of our collections in most museums is in store at any one time. So when you have things... Uh, that sit in storage and frankly once an object goes into storage it tends to stay there Uh, then the temptation to uh, utilize the funds locked within it must be quite strong. My concern however is that um, after the pandemic is over and we're going to have so many huge bills to pay um, I think we're going to see a lot more of this and what I think we need to do is have some kind of system in place which recognizes that all these objects are part of our single national art collection. And therefore, we have to be quite careful about how we sell things off. Now, when I used to be an art dealer, uh, and I would look at auction catalogs in the United States, the thing which most excited me was when I saw the text at the top of an auction entry saying, item being deaccessioned by ex-museum, because quite often they would take something which they had disregarded in storage and thought, ah, that's a piece of rubbish, and flog it. Uh, One of my favorite examples is when the Metropolitan Museum in New York sold a lovely study by Rubens, of his daughter, uh, the estimate was, I think, about $25,000 because they thought it wasn't by Rubens, and it subsequently was proved to be and is worth... Didn't you buy that one, Bentor? Wasn't that you? Well, I I tried to, but unfortunately, (laughs) I didn't make it. So I think we need some sort of safety net, some expertise body, perhaps, and I'm sure you and I could volunteer, to be on it to make sure that doesn't happen Mm -hmm. here. My second ambition for this uh, safety net, if you like, would be to give other museums a reasonable stab at buying or acquiring the item themselves. Uh, A recent example was a Leighton House Museum in London sold a landscape by Joseph Wright of Derby. Um, They used the money quite properly to buy other pictures but they also quite properly offered the picture to other museums first at a discount rate of £70,000. Now No other museum felt able to buy it. And eventually it was sold on the open market for £240,000, which seems to me a problem that needs to be addressed.
0: Mm -hmm. It's interesting that you mention America, though, because uh, in in many ways what goes on in America is a little bit frightening. I I know Baltimore Museum is a good example. They recently sold off, I think, seven of their major pictures by what they called were white male artists. So you're talking about people like Andy Warhol, Robert Rauschenberg, uh, Klein, Franz Klein. You know, these are big abstract expressionists and pop art pictures, which they sold in order to start a whole new collection of of work by African-American artists. Now, I've got um, nothing but interest and sympathy for people wanting to build up collections of African-American art. That's a really good cause. But I wonder if decimating your collection you know, and selling off all the other stuff, is the way to do that I mean it becomes a bit of a political porn doesn't it then the art in your storeroom and I'm worried in case things that um, are done for 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 sort of political reasons rather than for for practical reasons or for for artistic reasons. Yes it's always
1: dangerous when Uh, museums follow uh, a political current too strongly that said I have to say I don't think there's any shortage of Andy Warhol's in museums and I think uh, broadly a museum that doesn't sort of feel able to energize itself with new acquisitions is uh, frankly a dead museum
0: well anyway that's uh, a lot talked there about deaccessioning terrible word uh, I wanted to talk about something slightly different, uh, Bendor. I, I was writing about Gauguin in my uh, article in the Sunday Times this week. But there's, amongst these hundreds of shows that are not happening right now is one I was really looking forward to at the Royal Academy, which is it's called Gauguin and the Impressionists. And it's a collection in Copenhagen called the Odrupgaard Collection. I know I've mispronounced that. Uh, and it's a collection of largely french 19th century pictures which were built up by uh, a, a danish collector in the 20th century housed in this beautiful little museum in the suburbs of copenhagen but i've been there i filmed there uh, and it knocked me out above all because of the gogans now People know that, um, well, most people know that Gauguin was married to a Danish lady, Meta Gogam, whose family is still around. Indeed, her great-great granddaughter lives in Bristol. I think she communicates with me sometimes. Wonderful, really? interesting woman. Also called Meta Gogam. Huh. but the original Meta Gauguin, Gauguin's wife. Um, she was obviously uh, left a lot of his art when he died, and she's been the she was the custodian of the things he left behind. And so they tended to stay in Copenhagen. In one way or another, a lot of the best ones ended up at the Museum, the Odrup collection in Copenhagen. And what's really fascinating about the things they've got, the Gogans they've got, is they tend to be early Gogans painted in the family, so very personal. Um, he had five children with Meta, and he was for uh, you know, most of his time with his wife, well, most of the time they were together, a very sort of loyal and loving husband, who painted some of the most lovey-dovey pictures of kids I think <laughs> I've ever seen. Now, You know, because you've seen a lot of old master art, Bendor, that children don't always come out too well in art. I mean, there's this hilarious um, uh, internet site, it's a Tumblr site called something like Hideous Renaissance Babies, isn't there? Because artists are, are curiously unsteady when it comes to painting children. I suspect the real reason for that is because so few of them spent any time at home with their children, usually farmed that off to their wives while they went into the studio and did their old master bit. But they are not very reliable on the sort of the spirit, the wildness of children. If you've been a dad, as I have, you are, and a lot of more contemporary artists have been a stay-at-home dad if you like. You know what children are like and they don't appear in that guys in art very much but they do in Gauguin's pictures. There's a particularly beautiful one that's called The Little One is Dreaming and it's a, a picture of his daughter Aline who was about three, three and a half at the time, just lying on the cot. She's got her back to us and she's lying there asleep and this is little details that, that make it a very tender picture for me and um, by her feet there's the blanket which presumably it's quite warm and and, and they haven't put the blanket over her so she's got her sort of toes clutched around it Uh, and behind her is the wallpaper of the house they're in and it's covered with birds and what Gauguin's done really brilliantly apart from giving this tender sense of of looking down on his daughter caring for her while she sleeps in this in this lovely little wrought iron bed that she's in is suggested a sense that she's dreaming so the wallpaper, which has got all these birds on it. It's almost like her dream world. And because she's there, she's got her back to us and we're looking down on her. It sort of persuades us to follow her into this dream world and to feel this dreamy, soft atmosphere around her. But of course, there's also something else in this picture. There's a little, in the corner, there's a little puppet hanging on the edge of the bed. You know, like you always used to have a little toy or a, a glove puppet or something for your kids. But here, it's a rather spooky little it's all sort of, gremlin of some kind he's a a guy with a with a pointy hat and a minstrel's jacket and bells on it And he's got a weird beard it's not a nice friendly biblical beard it's a sort of pointy hipster beard and he's got a slightly ominous presence and for me it's a picture that is about the love and the caring tenderness of a dad looking down on his daughter but it's also a kind of warning you know it's a sort of well life has got all this ahead of you as well And you know not all dreams are pretty there's also some darknesses in there so my point my big point is that that artists aren't very good at painting children often but Gauguin was really good at it that's my point Bendor.
1: Yeah I agree they are they are charming pictures Uh, and as ardent a fan of old master artists as I am Waldemar, I have to concede that they never really generally got to groups of painting kids and that's usually because they were asked to portray them as miniature adults really. I suppose that has a lot to do with child mortality and that sort of thing but Gauguin has clearly cracked it.
0: Well that's Good of you to say so. Uh, Well, I think we've cracked it as well. That's a good good, good bit of work finished there. Let's move on to our next section, very important section, Bendor, which is what people can get up to in these times of isolation.
1: Isolation.
0: Oh, I do love Bendy's voice there. Isolation. Now, it has been interesting to see the art world suddenly going to town on all these things that we can do now that all the museums are closed. Now my mailbox has been inundated, inundated with stuff. Every gallery that hasn't got a show on but wants us to remember them still, they've been piling into the internet and doing lots and lots of things. So there's a a cornucopia, an endless stream now of stuff to do at home when you can't go to the galleries. So uh, the hardest bit is actually choosing something to talk about. What what have you picked out of of this cornucopia, Bendy?
1: (laughs) Yes, there's been lots of stuff. Uh, but this week is the 500th anniversary of the death of Raphael. Uh, can you believe it? He was just 37 when he died. Uh, it's one of those Mozart-like figures. It reminds me of that great Tom Lehrer quote about by the time Mozart was my age, he'd been dead five years. It, it really uh, humbles us all how much these people <laughs> achieve, doesn't it? But anyway, um, one of the exhibitions that has been forced to close was the greatest and largest Raphael exhibition there had ever been. It was at the Scuderi Quirinale in Rome. They were going to have 120 works by Raphael, pictures and drawings, 200 objects in all, uh, but it was closed after just four days. Uh, And what a blow uh, to art lovers that that was. Um, The good news is they've put up uh, an array of very good videos on the YouTube site, and we'll have links to that on our page. Uh, they've put something up which they call a virtual tour but it's actually a film going through the the gallery from room to room the commentary is all in Italian I don't speak much Italian I don't know about you Aldemar but I quite liked actually not being able to understand every word it was it sort of helped take me out of the current uh, dark times looking at lovely works by Raphael and, and hearing a dreamy Italian voice wittering away about it. Um, <laughs> now, when I was, in, I was in Rome just before the, the, this all started in Europe and I saw the posters for this exhibition everywhere. And they said, Raphael 1520 to 1483. And I thought, oh, they must have had a typo there because normally you would write Raphael 1483 to 1520. But actually, as you see in the video, this is an exhibition which goes backwards. And I've never seen an exhibition which goes backwards, have you?
0: Uh, not deliberately, but um, I, have, I have wandered by accident through them from the wrong entrance <laughs> or the wrong exit, as the entrance, as it were. Yes, it's yes, often a good way to avoid the crowd. It's stimulating. It? Mm.
1: But I, actually, this was a really intriguing and fascinating way of approaching an artist, because the first object you see is a replica of Raphael's tomb in the Pantheon. It's quite cleverly done by the look of it. And he asked a question. He was so lauded when he died, how did he get to that place? And then it goes back through his career, right to his childhood. Uh, and Raphael is one of those extraordinary artists, isn't he? who seems to emerge fully formed. So often great artists take a, a while to get going, don't they?
0: You know that his birthday, was which just happened right now, 6th of April. So he, he was born on the 6th of April. He died on the 6th of April. Yes. Uh, and 6th of April was Palm Sunday. So all very kind of... Fitting, I thought, when I was uh, looking at the, the the dates and I was watching these films on the Roman website.
1: Well, and I think Raphael is—he's a good artist to um, uh, detach yourself from scary times, isn't he? Because everything—I mean, beauty is a word overused in our game, Waldy, but it, almost everything he does is is beautiful and harmonious, isn't it? Uh, there's no there's no violence for violence's sakes in in Raphael's work, and and so this was a, a lovely fifteen minutes to to study art in isolation if you fancy more Raphael uh, there is a very good virtual tour on the Vatican Museum's website where you can go through the amazing suite of Raphael rooms. Um, The definition is really good and even though it pops up on the screen it still seems when you stand in front of things like the school of Athens the 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 perspective that Raphael just completely mastered still pops out at you and you think gosh am I really looking at a painting Mm. so I recommend that the other advantage of course is you can go through the Raphael rooms when they're empty which is something I've never done I've only ever been in a horde of crowds
0: I don't know about you I've done it now I've done it you know this is the great thing about about being as old as me you've filmed all these things I have filmed in the Raphael stanzas and what an exciting experience it was and they they, but recently they they, i think they spent about 10 15 years restoring them of late they were always closed whenever i went the last few times and they now look glorious because after that huge restoration of course they're back to some of their original sparkle it's such a such an extraordinary achievement such a sustained effort of of brilliance. So the thing about Raphael is that he's he was immensely popular. He was like the great high Renaissance genius right up until the end of the nineteenth century. I mean, there are most most artists would rate him much higher, for example, than Leonardo da Vinci or, or even Michelangelo, because of this beauty, this perfection that he brought to art. He was the the one they all aspire to. But then he went curiously out of favour. The 20th century wasn't really big on Raphael. There's a sense in which that kind of gentle beauty that you talk about, the sense of perfection, didn't really push the right buttons in the 20th century. Well, a violent age. But it's only recently again. I know, I'm not. I'm not saying that's my view. I'm saying that's what happened to him uh, in the world of sort of cubism and expressionism and an Otto Dix. You know, there's not much room in your hearts for, for the for the beauties of Raphael. Yeah. But that's changing a bit. And I also think, see, Raphael himself had had. A darker side to him than we often recognise, and some of his late work is is sometimes presented as a kind of precursor of mannerism. One of the great things about him was that he was actually multi multi talented and could do everything. He could do portraits, he could do religious pictures, he could do fresco, he could do oils, and he could do a bit of darkness too. And the late transfiguration is the one that people always hold up. So he was someone who, well, I think in a, in a great way because he's been slightly forgotten, is is there ripe for rediscovery, if you like? And there, there is a big Raphael show, isn't there, heading for the National Gallery? I don't know if it still is or what form it's going to arrive in, but I do know it has an ambition to reintroduce us to him, which I personally will, will, will be very grateful.
1: Yeah, well, we're lucky that because he's such a big name and so uh, well photographed that he is an artist we can study in some depth in our isolation. On the Google Arts and Culture site, you can really zoom in on some
0: good Raphael pictures in in high resolution we should tell all to everybody listening that all these references every time bendy mentions a website and all that that's that is actually going to be down on if you go to the sunday times web pages you'll find all those places to go to and and to click and and find out more um i've taken a very different tack here bendy so i've forced you to uh, to look at the andy warhol show at tate tate modern now this is one of the many exhibitions that opened and it was open for more than four days i think but not much longer and it's now closed so tate modern has done what everybody's doing which is they've sent a team in um, and filmed the exhibition and, and produced their virtual tour of it if you like uh, what happens is you've got the two curators of the show from the Tate sitting there on a chair uh, talking about the exhibition telling us what their ambitions were for it and then we get uh, as they're talking we get to see the show so bits and pieces of the pictures come up Warhol is discussed uh, and uh, the ambition I trust or I believe is to give you a real sense of what the exhibition is like now the reason I want to mention it is is because it doesn't do that for me to me it's a kind of object lesson in how not to do a virtual tour of a show because you've got the two guys talking on the chair and they're pretty informative and they give you their view of what Warhol was about and what he did but I couldn't get any kind of picture of how the exhibition looked to me it's a it's a sort of failure in the way that you film shows there's not enough wide shots that give you a a sense of going from room to room no real sense of how the rooms feel uh with the pictures hanging on them everything's sort of done in close-ups and it's all a kind of triumph of snippy snappy style over content and uh, having made a lot of art films myself, as I know you have as well, Bendor, uh, you know that one of the important things that to, when you're filming art is to try and convey a sense of what it feels like to be there with it, to, to be in that room or to be looking at it. And that's just missing. And to me, it's a failure. And I want the Tate and all the other institutions that are giving us these surrogate video uh, introductions to exhibitions mm-hmm. taking us there through the ether rather than real life. I want them to give us a much better idea of what those shows are like. I don't know yes. if you agree with me.
1: Well I, well, I do actually, and who'd have thought it well did, that making art films is actually a little bit trickier than it looks. Um, <laughs> I, I did assume that perhaps the reason they didn't show so many pictures in the video was something to do with rights or image licensing or something like that. But at the one time I thought they sort of got it right was when they were talking about his late paintings and you got some good details there as a technique and what have you. Actually, I quite like those pictures. Um It did seem to me a little bit like a sort of privatised Sood's Corner, but especially when they had a sort of a shot of his wigs, which were there presented like holy relics. Um
0: <laughs>
1: Anyway, <laughs> yes. not my cup of tea.
0: Well, anyway, it was was an interesting show. Uh, Not not a great show, I thought, but an interesting show. Uh, But the show's better than the video tour of it. Of course it is. It always is, isn't it? It's always better to go to the real thing. But those are a couple of things that you can do at home while you're you're in isolation. Uh, And we'll be coming back with some more of those in the weeks to come. But now we move on to the bit of the programme I'm really looking forward to, the bit where we get to realise our dream.
1: on the wall
0: yes it's on the wall it's the bit of the podcast where bendy and i imagine what we would like to have on our walls if we could have anything out there at all any picture any sculpture anything in the museum without walls what would we have on our walls uh let's start with you bendy what have you picked out for us
1: i've gone for a painting by sranton van dyke my favorite artist it hangs in the Museum of Art in Puerto Rico. So it's a painting I'm unlikely ever to be able to see. So I quite like the idea of magically having it in isolation here on my walls at the moment. Um, it is a, a painting of Santa Rosalie or Saint Rosalie. I'm not sure how you pronounce it. And it was painted when Van Dyke was in Palermo in Sicily in 1624. Uh, the images of a saint uh, beseeching uh, up to God and showing with her hands behind us, uh, the town of Palermo. Uh, And the reason it's uh, quite relevant to our times is it was painted when Van Dyck was on lockdown there because there was a terrible outbreak of the plague and he couldn't uh, get out. Uh, He'd been summoned to Palermo to paint uh, the prince, Emmanuel Filiberto, who promptly died shortly after Van Dyck painted him. Uh, And at the same time, the local residents unearthed the bones of this uh, this saint, Saint Rosalie, and they decided to uh, make her their intercessor for all things to do with the plague. They thought she could save her. So old Van Dyke uh, was roped into churning out pictures of Saint Rosalie. This is one of them. I think it's the best one. It's not a great painting. It's not one of his greatest paintings, but it's a it's a good work, and it's it's a lovely reminder that out of uh, all things plaguey and lockdown, things of great beauty can come. And it also seems to me that Van Dyke's experience of being on lockdown during the plague somewhat changed him. Uh, before he got to Palermo, there's tales of him in Rome acting very arrogantly, assuming he was the greatest artist who'd ever lived. But when he leaves Sicily, after being there for a year stuck um, and dodging the plague, I, I sense that he becomes a slightly less bombastic and less arrogant painter. So so perhaps the times we're in may yet change us all for the better.
0: Mm. It's a great picture. I'd, I've never seen it before. Uh, and Of course, we always think of Van Dyck as the great portraitist. We forget that we had this whole other Flemish identity as a painter of religious imagery. Uh, this, this, to me, when I first saw it, I thought, hey, that's a Mary Magdalene, because Mary Magdalene's always shown in a sort of similar, well, not all, she's often shown in a similar situation, in a cave, over a high landscape, looking down at stuff, pointing at a skull, it's all the uh, accoutrements, if you like, of Mary Magdalene on show here, and she's got that beautiful expression, that wonderful bit of Van Dyke, looking up at the sky while the light falls divine light falls on her face and illuminates it and her hands reach out and point backwards to is that palermo below her it it? is palermo yeah it's palermo being saved by by divine intervention but it's a it's a lovely picture i i i it's the the kind of picture i would actually go all the way to puerto rico just to see Ah. for me there's uh, nothing better than going somewhere to see an art object that's a great end to a journey for me
1: Well, perhaps that should be one of my goals. A reward if we get through this. I'll take myself to Puerto Rico.
0: Yeah, well, put me in your luggage, please. (laughs) Now, I've gone for something similar. Um, Now, I'm obsessed with Mary Magdalene, as anyone who's seen any of my recent art mysteries will know. Uh, She popped up into my life when I did a special... Uh, one hour sort of program about her and what I like about her is that she's essentially a character who in the bible is hardly described at all there's there were a couple of mentions of her that's it nothing finite nothing clear and yet this vagueness gave everybody permission to imagine all sorts of stuff about her and she becomes this international pin-up who have Appears in churches up and down the Christian world as as the beautiful young woman who somehow had an intimate relationship with Jesus, etc. And she brought Christianity to Europe. That's the big legend about Mary Magdalene. But uh, since we're in Easter week at the moment, still, and today uh, is Easter Sunday, it seemed particularly pertinent to to deal with her. So I've gone for a picture I I, I like a lot, and it's by an artist called Savoldo, mm. who's Uh, another high renaissance master uh, born in Brescia but but basically worked in Venice most of the time in the 1530s and 40s which was roughly when this was painted and this is Mary Magdalene coming out of the sepulchre now if you know your bible which I know you do Bendor because you're a good a good person who will go to heaven and all that you'll know that Mary Magdalene one of the few times she does appear in the bible is when she sees She's one of the women who go to the sepulcher after Christ rises from the dead, and she sees that it's empty. So she's one of the first people to know that Jesus has gone somewhere. She doesn't yet know that he's going to come back. That's something that happens later in the story when he's dressed as a gardener, if you remember. There's that great painting by Titian in the National Gallery, Noni Metangare, where she comes across the gardener and it turns out to be Jesus. But this is before that. This is when she's gone to the sepulchre she's come out of the sepulchre and and there she is in the painting you see her she's wrapped in this beautiful silver gown silver robe pulled up over her face you can tell it's Mary Magdalene because there's a little pot in the corner pot is always her attribute because she used to spread beautiful perfumes on people Mm -hmm. Uh, and she looks towards us and there's a, a quizzical expression on her face. She's got a sort of hand up by her chin, and she's crouched and, and just staring, as if as if something's just happened, and she's looked, she's looked round to see us. And of course, what's brilliant about it, absolutely brilliant, is the light, right? So she's got this silver gown, and that silver gown is bright on her back. You can see it's particularly bright. There's a lot of light beaming there. Why? Because Jesus is there unseen outside the picture pretty much where we are Jesus has just appeared to her and she's turned around she's heard a noise and there he is and her only indication that he's there is this glorious light that's fallen on her so it's a, pu- a beautiful piece of, of high renaissance conceptual art Savaldo so was, a, was a, a great painter in my opinion, who was overlooked for quite a long time. I mean, he was basically forgotten about for the 16th, 17th, 18th centuries. It wasn't until the late 19th century people started to talk about him again. And this work, which exists also in several versions, there's a another one in the Getty Museum in Los Angeles. This work for me sums up what's so brilliant about him because it's, it is a conceptual artwork. I mean, it's all this going on, this brilliant storytelling, but it's all done so subtly. So uh, at Easter time, when you have to think of Mary Magdalene, this seems to me to be a particularly appropriate picture.
1: It's a real feast. Uh, the, the technique is extraordinary. That uh, drapery is, uh, is very tangible, isn't it? You want, you want to reach in and crinkle it yourself.
0: Oh, I do. And I also want to reach in and crinkle you too, Bendy, you <laughs> lovely, lovely man. Uh, unfortunately, we've run out of time, so that'll have to wait for yet another week. Uh, that's the end of uh, our little peregrination across the art world for, for this week. But hopefully we'll be back with plenty more. Remember, everybody, nothing better than art. Take care of yourselves and stay safe. Waldy and Bendy. And Bendy.